That's right, they're playing video games for money. And I'm definitely not gonna let uh, Mass Effect in my house. The level of violence on video games. It might be hazardous to physical and mental health. Pokemon world is a world of the demonic. Then there's the argument that video games can be art. They're a world phenomenon. Yeehaw, and welcome to Hit Point Pals, where we gather to nerd out about video games and the culture of play. I'm your Wild West sharpshooter, Travis Lean. With me are my gunslinging companions, William Suit. Big Yee. And Rebecca Markley is here in the saloon with us. Howdy. Will and I played some Red Dead 2 online after we figured out how to get the game working for both of us. Yes. Because, yeah, uh, PC port how how do you make it i guess is what they're doing over at rockstar these days um i had to disable my antivirus to make mine work otherwise it would just crash on launch but also what a gorgeous game absolutely it's oh 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 things look so good in the morning because we had we had been playing for we played pretty late last night in the morning i woke up and i thought did I like? Did I dream a video game that, like, <laughs> that just like looked fantastic? And then I remembered, no, that's yeah, that was real. Yeah, man, I don't know. Game's got some issues, but it looks fantastic. Distant rendering of trees and just scenery. Man, I love exploring the Wild West. I love riding around on my horse. We explored like an area that was in Red Dead One. So seeing like the the leap in graphical fidelity. Uh, to me, it was very mind-boggling <laughs> to see locations that I had seen before in, like, the 360 era. Uh, there's a lot of weird stuff in this game. It's like, there's some, like, MMO-facing uh, aspects, mm -hmm. but I like it. I like it so far. I love being a cowboy. It's cool. It's very, yeah. very neat. There's just kind of a lot of stuff to figure out. There's a lot of menus. There's a lot of... So I got something called, like, an ability point, and it took me forever to figure out how to get... Uh, adding friends. Uh, yeah, the menus are a bit obtuse. That was that took forever. Um, you have a camp, and there's a decrepit old man in your camp. You can buy clothes for him. Yeah, you can customize your decrepit old man. It's uh, it's yeah. interesting, huh? Y you can customize like your campsite. You can customize your, and by customize, I mean like you change something to a different color. So. Not a whole lot of like ve like very expensive customization options for things that don't really do anything, which is most games, I guess, which is most online things is like cosmetics. It's just funny how like there's like this mystical RPG interpretation of the Wild West and they're selling you things like a new barrel for your campsite. And it's like a lot of a lot of in-game money it's like 150 dollars for a barrel and we're making like five dollars per quest it's like i don't want to invest so many hours into a barrel at my campsite but another game that i was playing uh last week uh was the outer wilds and or no mm -hmm. hang on hold the on the outer second. worlds <laughs> <laughs> The outer, I even bolded the O in the document so I'd remember to say it, but I didn't. Anyway, Outer Wilds, very good game, but I was playing The Outer Worlds, in which uh, this game feels to me like it, it has that like nostalgia of a Bioware RPG, where I've got companions who have, who have great personalities, who have uh, loyalty quests for most of them. Um, it's just like, it's one of those comfort things where it's like, this takes me back to play Knights of the Old Republic, where I don't feel like the game is doing anything that's really wowing me, 
but it's just like a really polished thing that makes me feel good playing it. I don't know. I like having a ship. I like having crewmates and I like going on quests and I like the kind of straightforward approach where sometimes you talk to a quest giver and you have some really good dialogue options that are like, listen, I just want the quest. I don't care about the lore of the world. Just I, I want the quest. I don't I don't care why you're sending me to kill all these rats. Just tell me what to do. I'll go do it. I'll get the money. I'll level up. Would you say it's OK? So you, you said it was kind of like. Like, it reminded you a lot of, like, the Bioware games, but also, like, it's, like, a, a spiritual successor to New Vegas. Would you yeah. say it slides closer to either one, or is it just kind of, like... I that's think like it's a... closer to a Bioware game. Oh, interesting. That's, that's interesting. my take, anyway. But this is, this is a game that's, like, it has the... Like, it has the benefit of, like, uh, like a decade's worth of these sorts of games to look mm -hmm. back on and improve on. And so, it, 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 like, it's like playing... Uh, like Fallout New Vegas, but there's so many good quality of life changes uh, just to make everything really streamlined, like straightforward dialogue options, uh, live looting system. Um, the menus are like you don't get lost in them. It's and that's kind of the way I like it. Mm -hmm. uh, it works really well for this style of games uh, specifically, too, where it's just like, look, I don't I don't want to get lost in like a million things of customization, just like it shows you like a perk chart and it's like there's a limited amount of perks to choose from and I can kind of plan for which ones I want and I can put some points into skills and the skills get grouped up so it's like here's your here's your like sneaky skills and for the first 50 levels you put points into all of them at once so instead of putting points into like lock picking and hacking I'm just putting points into the category uh. and it's it's leveling up all those skills automatically so this is a game where it's like, do you do you like uh like do you like Bethesda games and Bioware games? Do you want one that just works really well? Here you go. But Hell if you're looking for something that's like going to blow your mind, this is not it. And no, I don't think every, any I don't think every game has to be like a reinvention of the wheel. Mm -hmm. Uh I, I kind of I, like there's a comfort in this game where it's like it's very familiar and very polished and very good so uh haven't actually touched it since last week but i i got pretty far into it i think based on like playtime averages i think i've got like another maybe five to ten hours to go and then i'll be done with it Sounds like, okay so you're like you're pretty much done almost. yeah it's it's pretty short i think if you do side quests it's about like 40 hours i think is what i read and if you don't do all the side quests it's like 20 so that's not too um, bad yeah and how much is it, just to compare with our discussion oh, yeah. a couple I, of weeks ago? Am I getting my, uh, my dollar per hour worth out of this? Are you getting a dollar per hour? Um, I, am, I was playing it on Game Pass, so I didn't pay uh, any extra money for it, other than like the promotional price I paid for Game Pass, which was like $5. I, is this a $60 game, The Outer Worlds? Uh, I do not know. The Outer Worlds. Uh, let's see, Epic Game Store. Uh, this is mature content, okay. That's fine. Oh yeah, it's sixty dollars. Um, sixty bucks. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's sixty bucks on Epic Game Store, or it's bundled in in Game Pass. Cool. Anyway, that's what I've been up to. Uh, Rebecca, tell us what you've been up to. Um, I've been playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons this week. Um, your girl is officially a professional DM, which is really Yay. exciting. Um, I'll be playing. Or I guess I'll be running games with like the Orcs, Orcs, Orcs pop-up event, which is in Portland, P 
people, I guess, people in the world pay $40 to, um, I guess, like have a nice fancy meal cooked for them by, mm-hmm. I don't I should know what their names are. They all introduced themselves to me and I couldn't remember. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but, um, and that's like any, like joining a new thing or a new job. It's like, oh, oh okay. I'm not going to remember all this, but yeah. I mean, I feel like I tried to do, like, I tried to like ask people and be like, yeah, your name is Josh, right? And, you know, I still forgot. <clears throat> Sorry, really phlegmy right now. Um, yeah, so you, you go and you eat nice food and you get to play three to four hours of Dungeons and Dragons with, um, I guess, like other people that you brought tickets, bought tickets with. And um, for a lot of people, I guess this is their regular game. They'll like come to all of the Orcs events which I think is kind of silly because you can just find people and play for free. But I guess the whole, you know, it's it's an experience. It's like a pop-up event. You get dinner, too. You can make it like a weird date night or something like that. But I had to do a play test on Sunday night, and that was a little... didn't go as well as I wanted it to. Um, people were being problem players on purpose and dealing with problem players is never a fun thing to do and so i had to like be assertive with people who were supposed to then be hiring me and like that's always really scary um they they said i did a good job so i passed and so now i get to sign up for events and get paid to dm which is oh so people weren't being problem players just to be problem players was like no they were being like can you yeah can you deal with problem players um right yeah which i guess i guess i don't know i kind of wish i'd been like prepped for that a little bit more or i don't know i just i just felt really uncomfortable like yelling at the guy who literally invited me to do this like you wish you had been given a heads up or something yeah like a a little bit more of like an explicit heads up because they were like oh yeah you know running for dms is always weird because they always like know the rules too well and i was like yeah i I, most of the people i play with are also dms so i wasn't really like expecting people to then also be assholes on top of that um Mm -hmm. but i guess i did i get i did a good enough job people were impressed so that was fun um, but what I really wanted to talk about as far as um, Dungeons and Dragons go is all of this Unearthed Arcana that Wizards of the Coast has been releasing. Um, Unearthed Arcana is just their like playtest material that they sort of put out, you know, when they're creating supplemental books to publish. And there's a, been a lot of really cool things that people have been playing with like there's like new subclasses um there's a fighter subclass which is the rune fighter which i really want to play i think it would be really cool um it sort of pulls from the D giant lore when the giants are the are the, so the creatures that use rune magic and so like as a fighter you get to like you can like uh, get large you can become a large sized creature because you have all this giant yeah you have like this giant magic with you and then you can like uh, i guess like carve runes on your weapon that also you know like get to fortify an attack or make make your um damage increase um which seems really fun and then there's also just like other other cool things like there's a like a fire druid um and you get to have like a little like fire elemental pal instead of like a wild shape, which is wild shape is just like when you just shape shift. Um, but but that seems fun too. Um, but there's also this one, there was this one 
Unearthed Arcana that they just released that people have been talking a lot about because they're really excited. And it's um, called like class feature variants. So for each subclass, or I guess for each class that you choose, that's like your bard, your wizard, your fighter, your barbarian, um, you get to have these like extra abilities that go along that are class specific well instead of just like what's published they've added these new ones that you can sort of like swap out like if you don't want this if you i don't know if you don't want to have like one particular like cleric feature like maybe i I can't think of anything off the top of my head but you can trade that in for one of the ones that they're play testing instead and um people are you know wondering if this will go into create kind of like an advanced player's handbook they've done in like previous editions or in like Pathfinder. Um, that's sort of for like people who want to make the game more complicated, they are they can make the game more complicated and these are the additional rules that you can do that. And so they just like add more like versatility um, and sort of like play up different aspects of the class that you might not always be able to do just based on the regular rules. So that's really exciting. It makes me really want to play more as opposed to just running because I, you know, want to be able to experiment with all this new material and stuff like that. But you, you make so much yet you cannot partake. Yeah. It's a real bummer. It also is a real bummer because like D&D takes so many hours and so much energy to do and like you always want to do more, but it's like so exhausting, which mm-hmm. is a which is unfortunate. It's not just like sitting at home playing video games, which is also fun and can be exhausting, but you have to do all this like social stuff <laughs> and like talk Damn, to that humans. social stuff. And like go places and like put clothes on. Uh, I'm excited to hear more about your adventures with with the, with the orcs gang. That yeah. sounds Me like too. a lot of fun. Me too. Let us know if I, you have to yell at anybody. I yeah. will. I will. I'll give you all of the dirty details. Yes. Um, <laughs> I was hoping to run this month, but I think I'm doing way too much, and I won't have time to prepare anything that's like fun and awesome because like what they were saying is that i ran just like a regular one shot and they were like yeah this is good but you need to like amp up the drama and like make it a little bit more like larger than life and kind of crazy mm-hmm. because you know because people are paying for a D experience they don't want what they can just get at home right. um so i'll have to do some like thinking outside of the box. I don't know, maybe, do you have any ideas of, of things that you could do in D&D that seem larger than life? You can make people big. <laughs> Literally make them large, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but just like storylines or end of the world stuff, I don't know. Um, I think maybe if you had any sort of like, maybe you could do kind of what a, like, like a, like a psychic or like a fortune teller does where you'd kind of try to read people and then like invoke parts of their personality into the story and kind of creep them out at the same time. That would be fun. I, I wish don't really I have could, a specific I really, example. I wish I could, I wish I could it's just like a vibe read I'm people's auras. Right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like have something happen in their adventure that like brings out a really deep and traumatic memory in uh-huh. someone I, I don't think people would like that very much you're right they wouldn't i think they play D for escapism most of the time so Take yeah it. but like do you want people to feel uh like they're getting escapism or do you want to shake people to their very foundation 
I don't want to like trigger anybody. That seems that's yeah. Stressful. That's Rebecca, also true. none of the people who play at your table ever come back. What the <laughs> fuck are you doing? No, they probably might. They might. That's the thing. Is that like you can like you can request to have specific dungeon masters when you sign up for your ticket. So oh. if you. You'll, you'll gather your own little cult of people who enjoy yeah. being shaken to the core. I mean, I hope that I can find a group of people who, like, don't want a larger-than-life game and just want to <laughs> play some, like, normal D&D, so I don't have to try that hard. But This doesn't even sound like a real thing. Like, I understand it's a, it's a real thing. It just, it just, sounds, it just sounds very fantastical. <laughs> <laughs> what sounds fantastical? Just, like... like like a just like a business i guess or like a a, a place where people where customers like it's like a restaurant but for D D, like it's just very wild to me i mean they do it's only it's like a it's like an event um oh okay so it's i not guess like okay every, i've had a little bit like of like an day. incorrect picture of this i i guess i was thinking of it as like an establishment where like it's open from like eight in the morning to like <laughs> oh. 11 at night and there's like orc happy hour and stuff like that and and like people come through and they half, get a table half for price four. DMs and everyone, yeah, half price DMs, and you sit down instead of a, of a waiter or waitress, you just get like a DM, and <laughs> that would be pretty cool. A man this dressed is, as a this, wizard. Yeah, these are like pop up pop up events. So they go to a restaurant or they go to a space, and you know, like use it for an evening. Um, like they, they book it out, and then people come to the spot to eat and play games cool you could uh you could use travis's idea about making people big all the heroes could start out getting cursed and as the uh and they will continue to grow in size that's their <laughs> oh curse my and they will become that's they, a very they, good curse they are set to be the destroyers of the world but the heroes are like hell no so they have to work to undo their curse but as the game goes on they gradually get bigger so oh, the scale shit. of everything gets crazier until the very end where they are very big titans fighting cosmic beings that curse them. Oh my god, that sounds like a wonderful idea, actually. Very cool. Very I, cool. I, I want to explore like more curses um, and oh, sort of like yeah. interpersonal drama between characters where like somebody in the group gets cursed and then people have to like work to figure out what, what's going on. Oh. Um I feel like that's what interests me as a DM, but I don't know if other people would think that that would be as fun. I know this is the opposite of what you asked because you asked for things that are larger <laughs> than life. But I think <laughs> I, I think fantasy settings are really cool when they're about something very specific and and not super like uh, not super like worldly or not worldly, not super like end of the worldly or anything. <laughs> like uh -huh. um like y you are like a chef in a in a fantasy land or something or you're like a woodworker or you're like part of a woodworking club and you need to go find a bunch of wood but like the goblins are guarding the wood or whatever just like just like things that seem very mundane uh stuff like that is always I also very interesting like to me the mun like I, I i like sort of like magical realism or finding like the boring stuff like within magical like realms because i think that's also really interesting um, like not using like a magic for everything, just sort yeah. of doing your everyday stuff. But magic is also happening, right? Okay. Well, so, uh, Will, you were playing a game, but you're probably going to talk about this with us next week after you've played more of it, right? Yeah. Once I have a little more to say on it, please transition. 
Oh, yeah. But uh, in the meantime, I have been uh, messing around in the Unity game engine. Yes, I've heard of this. uh, Yes, indeed. It is. uh, It's very neat. I I don't understand much of it. Uh, Let me rephrase that. I don't understand most of it. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, I've been having a fun time, like, messing around with trying to create, recreate, like, low poly environments of, like, um, the, the visual look of, like, PlayStation 1 games or like, like, like mid nineties PC games. Uh yeah. Lost have you Vivo. done any of the Unity tutorials? Uh no, I have not. Oh damn. I wanted to talk about like if we had any shared experiences over like the prepackaged Unity. Oh uh, uh, yeah, no, demos. I I have I have never done those. I should, because then that would I, then I would know a little more about Unity. <laughs> um but I've just been like because in other engines I've messed with, I've I, I don't know, I'm always fascinated by like 3d geometry or figuring out figuring out how to add like detail into textures so i i know how to make like i don't know like different kinds of textures with like physical properties and then i was curious about like putting a lot of that information together into various textures to make like a world to make a scene a little scene and that's kind of what i've been working on and uh whether or not i finish the scene i don't know but i think it's a lot of fun just trying to figure out like just, just figuring it out and, and coming across problems I, I had never come across before, and then figuring out how to solve those. It's neat. It's a, it's a fun learning experience. What's a good problem you came across? Hmm, a good problem. And how did uh, you solve it? Oh, oh, geez. Uh, show your work. Uh, let's see. <laughs> hmm. I had a problem with like the three D geometry and like this building software that you can like install into Unity. I guess it's like a built in Unity package. Uh-huh. Like I figured out how to make a nice arch and I could make like walls, but I didn't really know how to get like very specific with geometry so I could like patch up holes in an arch or make like Wait, a half. How dome. does your arch get holes in it? Uh, not not holes, but like. I've got an arch, but then there's a space above that arch that is not oh, like yeah. solid. So I would need to have like an inverse of like at least part of that arch or something like oh, that. Okay. And then I was like, oh, cool. I, it's kind of like the old Valve editor uh, hammer where like I can just like delete a face or like a, a side of geometry so it doesn't get rendered and then it doesn't cause problems. So then I can have things like I can have bits of geometry overlap. And if I do it right, they aren't really noticeable or a problem. Uh, and that has worked out well, and its performance has been pretty good doing it. Whether or not it's, you know, the way you should do it, I, I, I'm almost certain it's not. But uh, it's, a, it's a temporary jerry-rigged solution, I suppose. But it's, yeah, it was, it was uh, yeah, hell yeah. Uh, I figured out how to make cube maps in Unity, um, so that, like, shiny surfaces and things on textures or just materials will actually have, like, the lighting data and like what they should be reflecting from the scene around them and that like you know that's night and day between having actual like vaguely accurate reflections and having entirely inaccurate reflections it really completely changes the way anything looks mm-hmm. but yeah it's been neat uh, messing around with this i'd like to i should go and do those tutorials so rather than just making a scene i can make something you could play in um but yeah i i need to get around to doing that and that's, yeah, it sounds yeah. sounds fun. The, yeah. the, so the, the like the, one of the things about those scenes is like, um, there's a lot of stuff that's already done for you. So parts of it, I'm like, okay, I understand what they're trying to teach me here, 
but I don't have a very good understanding of how this got to this point. And I think that's sort of the point is like, you're, you don't, they don't want to overwhelm you with all of that granular stuff right away. Mm -hmm. So I think I understand that. It's just, it's a little bit frustrating when it's like, Hey, we put together this weapon prefab for you. You can go in here and you can edit the properties of the weapon. And it's like, well, okay, hang on a second. (laughs) So who, how, how do you make the weapon prefab? And it's like, uh, nope, that's, that's, that's for something else. That's for like, that's for more advanced, like scripting and coding and stuff. Okay. I understand. I guess I'll get there eventually. Uh, very cool. Um, so that's what we've been up to this week. I guess the past couple weeks, uh, when we come back from this break, uh, I wanted to spend some time talking about Kojima, but also auteur theory. Uh, we've talked about Kojima on this podcast before, and it is a, is a hoot to discuss him. Um, auteur theory is something, well, let's take a break. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll, we'll, we'll talk, we'll talk about what is auteur theory and how does it apply to video games and where does it go wrong? And where does it knock? Where does it work? And where does it go wrong? We'll be right back. All right, we're back. So, if I were to ask you guys, who are some of your favorite? Not necessarily favorite, but who do you think of? If I say like, auteurs in film, Mr. Hitchcock. Mr. Hitchcock. Yeah, definitely Hitchcock. You can also say people who you don't really think should be considered auteurs, but are. Michael Bay. Okay, that's a good one. Um, I forgot what his name is, but he likes symmetry and lots of pastel colors. Wes Anderson? Yes. Oh, there we go. Auteur theory, I think, is is interesting when you try to apply it to video games, because it makes... Uh, it makes just as much sense as talking about it in film, right? Auteur theory in film has always kind of been this divisive thing where it's like the director is the person who uh, is kind of considered the person who creates the work, and auteur theory is very dismissive of like the work of the many other people who are are very central to creating a film. But you get these directors, like you guys mentioned, like Hitchcock or like Wes Anderson where all of their works have a lot of similar themes, uh, looks, and vibes, and <laughs> and just share a lot of personality. And so these directors start to kind of create this, like you start to feel like these directors have th- like, a, like a personality that comes through in their work. Um, and so I think that's why auteur theory gets so much traction. And I think a lot of it, I don't know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not for or against auteur theory, because I feel like a lot of it works, but I feel like there's parts of it that uh, obviously don't. I think it's really interesting when people talk about auteur theory in video games because of people like Hideo Kojima, who have kind of been brought up by a lot of people as like these very revered figures who just like everything they do is is meant to be like it should be worshipped. Uh, it should not be criticized. Uh, well, I went on the internet and looked to see like who the internet kind of considered gaming auteurs. Because in film, there's kind of a, a, a well-established set of names. In games, games are newer, of course, so not so many. But um, uh, one of the names that I saw floated around was Sid Meier, which made a lot of sense to me. Sid Meier's Civilization, Sid Meier's Pirates. Uh, a, a lot of his games feel like something you could uh, form an, uh, an auteur theory around. Will, was there... Who, who did you mention when i was asking about this 
Uh, I had brought up um, War Inspector and uh, Richard Garriott. Let's see. I put David Cage down here, Tim Schafer, uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, and then, of course, Kojima. So how do you guys think auteur theory works in the realm of video games? Thoughts on that? Uh, I suppose... I guess I've played Sid Meier's Civilization, but I guess I never really considered that to be... Like, he, I never, I guess, maybe I hadn't played enough of his games of Civilization, of, like, well, editions. Here, let me, let me start a new question, then. What, okay. what do you guys think about the way that we attribute create uh, that we attribute the creation of a work to a singular person? Mixed. I mean... <laughs> I mean... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, of course, these people in most of these cases aren't making the game. They're not even doing most of the work by themselves. But I think a lot of maybe the direction certain aspects of the game might take are from their like vision. I, I feel mixed on it. Yeah, like definitely. Oh, cool. A Kojima game. Like, I don't like all of his work, but a lot of the ones that I, I do enjoy, I, I like I enjoy the most of his stuff. And I'd absolutely love to check out. um uh, De Death Stranding. Hey, did you know Death Stranding is a Hideo Kojima game? Hey, he really wants you to know that. Directed by Hideo Kojima. It's directed by Hideo Kojima. And it's who, like... Who, who, is a, who is an indie games director. Did you know that? Te uh, technically. Um, wow. But it's just... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. For some reason, I'm more mixed on it in gaming than I am in film. And I don't know why. Oh. When I think of like a Wes Anderson film, I get like a strong image in my head and go, ah, yes, Wes Anderson. When yeah. I think of like a Kojima game, I don't get as strong of like an image in my head, despite the fact I've played a lot of his stuff. So maybe it's not, I feel more mixed or so, it's just my association with like an auteur and his work isn't as strong in gaming. I, I think that's a better way for me to phrase it. I think I agree with that. That's what I was trying to say when I was babbling about said Meyer. Um, I feel like maybe it's like my politics have shifted, um, and I care more about like worker rights and like recognition on projects. I feel like it would be a pain in the ass to be a creative working for an auteur. Mm -hmm. Um, cause I feel like you have much less sort of like agency and like what you can contribute in like the work environment. And then you also, I mean, I guess you can, you know, like, oh, I got to work on like this this, I guess, project that has like a big name. Um, people care a lot about it. There's a lot of like clout. But I also feel like, you know, workers should be recognized for their labor and celebrated for their labor. Um, so I think it's kind of kind of shitty that they aren't like the art director really isn't, you know, like they aren't as celebrated or, you know, all the people who like are a part of you know, I guess like the story development, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because I think they also are very important in the, um, the, the final, the final product. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, the, the, this is a thought that I fundamentally agree with. And at the same time, I, I guess I just, I don't have any way to visualize what fair recognition of anyone would be because nowhere in the world or in history has that ever <laughs> been the case. Yeah. So it's sure. just like a foreign concept to me. Like, I don't know what that would look like. I also, yeah, it's like, and if you like, you know, it's no longer like, oh, this game is by Kojima. Instead, it's how, how do you, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think of how would you kind of give everyone like th that recognition in something. 
I feel like we're conditioned to... I, this is probably something I've said on this podcast many times, but people like things to be very simple. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of conditioned to distill things down to like a, a way that we can very easily and and fluidly and quickly talk about it. So it's really easy to talk about like the Metal Gear series and Kojima's discography and, and PT and stuff like that and, and have a conversation be all about him because he's the... He's the person that connects them. He's the strand that connects them all. <laughs> um, but I, 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 like, I know that, like, in film especially, there are directors who will kind of carry the same creative people with them. So I think that's one interesting aspect of auteur theory is like, mm-hmm. is like, if Christopher Nolan, if you're looking at him as an auteur but you're disregarding like the director of photography that he brings to every film that he does. It gets into this weird murky area where it's like, obviously auteur theory has some value, but there's also like these tendrils where like auteurs definitely have many people who like work with them and, and work behind them, but like they never and get any probably of the successful and, because yeah. of like those people, you know, like, like I would imagine part of like most of what an auteur does is like, successfully curating people mm-hmm. um like i know that's that's a lot of how i felt when i was just going through film school was like learning which people i liked to work with best and 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 also knowing that that was like a large part of what would make my project successful or not was like if i picked the right people to do the right things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so i never necessarily felt like like i was like I never necessarily felt like I was the person who was 100% six, uh, responsible for being successful in my projects. It was more like I had a responsibility to choose the the right people for the right jobs and that was that that would determine whether or not stuff that I was working on would succeed. Um mm-hmm. but it's it's they like it's weird to communicate that uh which is why I think auteur theory is so popular and why a lot of these people like like david cage have such like rabid and loyal fan bases despite the fact david cage is a piece of shit and makes the worst video (laughs) games ever made i guess will thoughts on kojima uh just in general yeah um when you mentioned like maybe certain auteurs getting like lots of praise and like you know there's kind of like a cult following around them and you can't criticize anything about them um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly that with like Kojima, but I, I do think th- there are some things about Kojima that like most people would consider like not very good, but like oddly enough, people are like, oh, well, th- that's just what you expect. And it's like, well, not really. Um, I think when I think of any a, examples of that, when I think of a Kojima game, I think of probably an incoherent story. No, not incoherent, a convoluted story. Is it enjoyable to play as I'm asking you because you're the only person here who has actually played any of his games so mm-hmm. far? Is it enjoyable to play through these con or to watch these convoluted stories? For me, absolutely. Okay. I find them enthralling. But um, you don't think that they're what, good? Some of them I, I think get a little too into themselves and into uh-huh. like Kojima's vision for things. And sometimes when when it's that, like, I think Metal Gear Solid 2 for me, I, I like that game a lot, but I think parts of it just get a, a bit too meta. Mm-hmm. Metal Gear Solid 5 has some of that. Metal Gear Solid 5, story aside, like, 
there's there there have been jokes about that game having like credits before every mission, and it does, and every mission tells you a game by Hideo Kojima. And it's like, okay, you're doing these like credits for like an episode, but this is extremely annoying. And I'm wondering like why you're doing this, because it is certainly not immersive. Right. Um Metal Gear Solid 4, I, I don't know. It, it's just the way he goes about setting up and like the 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 how do I want to say this? The general feeling I get from his convoluted games is something I really enjoy. And despite having played a lot of them, I can't quite pinpoint what it is I I enjoy about them. I suppose I like being left with lots and lots of questions and not getting all the answers. Mm -hmm. Because I've played too many games from oftentimes other Japanese developers or just other Western developers that like, they need to tell you everything, every mechanic, every bit of lore, everything. Yeah, that is the worst. And it just reaches this point where it's, you know, I I kind of want to, I feel like I should be presented with something that wants me to engage with it. I believe you and I, Travis, we had played this game called God God Eater. God Eater, yeah. And that was, I think we played one mission and stopped because we had a headache of so many things stopping and telling us everything about some lore that we couldn't understand because it was all being dumped on us. Yeah, and part of that is like the Japanese style, and I recognize it from some like really poor anime that I've seen. Mm -hmm. But like there's also a lot of good anime that subverts that it's just it seems like within the japanese style of making games and making anime one of the like defaults that a lot of works end up going to is like lore dumps 24 7 it is very odd Mm -hmm. Uh, and i have to try to like separate that from western culture and try to give them the benefit of the doubt but it's very difficult because like i think when something's bad it's just objectively bad at least to (laughs) me and it's like okay like i can give i can i can give the sort of foreign culture aspect of it uh, like a little bit of credence but i i'm also not going to like try and power through something that i'm genuinely not enjoying and and see i think that's interesting because um dark souls uh if you read every item description in that fantasy game like it's it's pretty similar to just a lore dump. Yeah. But f- the way that game handles it, how it's completely optional, I, I think I think that works there. That that kind of like love of just like dumping lore into things. It seems to work in that case where it's like in- completely optional and you have to engage with it. Yeah, I think you could make a strong case of uh, for auteur theory with uh, Hayao Miyazaki and the Souls games that he has done. I definitely feel like he has a very strong, like, directorial voice on, on those games. Even, I don't know, I mean, we played Dark Souls 2, and I know he wasn't involved with that one, but, like, the way it's kind of embodying that spirit of what mm-hmm. he created as well. Hang on, I have to... Yeah. Uh, it's Hidetaki Miyazaki. Oh, okay. <laughs> what, what the hell did I say? You said Hayao Miyazaki. Oh, whoops. <laughs> Another auteur, but anyway... um yeah i forgot what the question was that started this um especially because well, i stumbled like a through general, kojima a general conversation about auteur theory and how it applies to games um and i guess with the the fact that i have been and am right now stumbling through talking about kojima as a gaming auteur i don't know what like i said earlier when i think of like wes anderson or hitchcock i go oh yeah i, I yeah i know what to expect like visually 
in the story with kojima i i don't know but for but some he, reason his stuff doesn't but his, his stuff has like similarities yes yeah if you've played like his works you'll be familiar with it and pick up on it but i think what do you pick up on i think just his way of tell of like telling stories the types of characters he has he always gives them not always but he usually gives them very odd names things like that but a lot of these things come together and create something that i can look at and go yes that's kojima but i'm not quite sure on every bit of it yeah i mean it also i think helps that he has to make sure that his name is all over everything that he does a game by hideo kojima yeah, so that you associate his style and his his way of telling stories through games with his name. And he, uh, if you've ever followed or seen anything by Hideo Kojima on Twitter, you'll know that well, the image you get is that this is a guy who sits in an office for like a week, like working on his game, and then takes like a week and just watches movies nonstop. Yeah. And I'm wondering if he's trying to emulate that kind of like association that film directors get with their work in like a new way and like or try to bring elements of that over into the gaming world yeah i mean kojima definitely looks at film directors that he admires and i think strives to carry that same sort of energy and i think succeeds pretty mm -hmm. much is like if you just look at the way that the public thinks of kojima um there are definitely like kojima fans in a way that i i have only really seen people talk about film directors mm -hmm. before um mm -hmm. definitely like feels like kojima is kind of like i, I want to say like a strong contender for like uh, it, it kind of bringing this idea of gaming auteurs to like a what am i trying to say to like a like a like a mainstream conversation where people yeah. would be like yeah, yeah like yeah like g gaming auteurs is a thing like there's this upcoming guy and this upcoming guy but i i like there are some that i had listed like sid meyer but i don't think any of them really were able to get that same sort of energy yeah in fact when i think kojima the kojima game i think okay hideo kojima and he's working on this game when i hear sid meyer honestly i think of just it's like a brand yeah, yeah. like yeah. sid meyer civ yeah. when i play civilization i don't think about uh, the, oh, this is a classic Sid Meier game. I don't yeah, think it's like that. Tom Clancy like, Splinter Cell. Yeah, it's like it's like branding. Yeah, or Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon. It's like guys, Tom Clancy is dead. How is he making these games, you guys? <laughs> I guess I, what is the difference between a brand and an auteur? I think I, if you're like pushing your own name as a sort of brand, then you're maybe a bit more likely to kind of have that auteur energy which is what i feel like kojima is actively doing i don't even know if sidmir works on these on those games <laughs> i assume <laughs> i assume he does but i, I don't know anything about sid, sid did Meier. He, like did he create the original civilization and then I, just sort I'm of dead like now he it's made the original but i don't know if he, i i i feel like he's totally worked on the others but maybe that's just because his name is in it i um, have no idea and i regularly play civilization i guess another thing i wonder is like it doesn't feel to me that in the film space that directors i'll just as like kind of a like a modern and fresh example i guess just christopher nolan like i don't believe that christopher nolan kind of goes around in the same way that hideo kojima kojima does 
saying, hey, I made these things. Mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. like I feel like in the film space, it's a lot more organic. Like directors of film are, are generally, aside from like Michael Bay, most of them are, are <laughs> generally very like kind of reclusive. Don't do a whole lot of interviews, really. It's pretty rare to get an interview with like Christopher Nolan. Um, they, I, I want to say like humble in a weird way. It's just that kind of like people end up like organically associating bodies of work with these people who a lot of times you don't even know what these people look like half the time because they're just not very public facing. Like uh, most film directors, I don't think are very public facing. And then Kojima has this different sort of energy where he's kind of like, look at me, I make all of these things. So I find that aspect of it very interesting and I'm not sure why it feels so different to me in those two different spaces where we're kind of talking about our two or three in the same way of like both a film and a video game are things that hundreds if not thousands of people work on to make and yet most of the credit generally ends up being attributed to the person who is credited as the director. Do you think that's just because games are a newer media or a medium excuse me where like we've had I guess like film has been around for so much longer and so we have like a developed sort of I guess understanding of like what and who and why with regards to like all the roles and like you know role in culture and like you know fan bases and that sort of like changes over time whereas like video games are much much newer and so (laughs) there's like a lot of like self-advocacy going on um sort of like a want to be taken more seriously yeah i think that because of how old film is that we have a better visual of how a film is made like Mm -hmm. we can envision a director's chair and we can envision a guy behind the lens of a camera. But mm-hmm. and and like it's it's there's behind the scenes content, right? And there isn't really any of that in video games. And I think part part of it is because so much of video games making video games happens in a computer. Uh, yeah. and there's no way to really like capture that. And there are people like the no clip folks who kind of do their best to capture like how games are being made. But it's still just like it doesn't transcribe as easily visually. Like a lot of it is talking heads and people talking about like the development process. And it just it it kind of remains a very abstract thing. So I think maybe when people play games, maybe you're playing like a, a lot of games that are made by the same people, but you don't really have a very good understanding of like what the roles these people uh, assume are and that's why maybe auteur theory doesn't work as organically in games and that's maybe why it only really works when kojima goes out there and tries to tries to to force the auteur upon himself and maybe because you know i guess it's a lot easier for people to make their own films at home like we all have like cameras on our phones um you know like you can sort of like play around with this with like film I guess a lot easier than you can just be like, oh, I'm going to like go teach myself how to make a video game. Mm -hmm. Um, It just seems like the level of enrollment needs to be a little bit higher for people who want to like make their own video games. And it is for like people to like make stupid videos for TikTok. Yeah. 
Because, I mean, like, I don't know, I like a lot of the same language in films applies to video games. Like, you have film producers, but you also have video game producers. And, like, wh what does a video game producer do? Well, they're, like, in charge of, I don't know, like, maintaining the team. And they're in charge of, like, relations with the media. Uh, kind of the same way a producer on a film is. Mm -hmm. But it's still, like, I, I don't have as good of a visual of what that is, I guess, because... It mostly happens in like press releases and stuff like that. And you have like on film in film, you have art directors and then in, in games, you have art directors uh, in games. You have programmers and programmers aren't a thing in film. Um, mm -hmm. You have many different levels of programmers in games. You have people who are de dedicated to uh, working out the AI. You have people who their job is to work out what the physics do. If you're doing a multiplayer game, you have people who their job is to figure out the networking aspect, make sure the net code works, and the people aren't like jumping all over the place when you get in an <laughs> elevator. Um, but these are all people who like their work exists in lines of code. And so it's really easy to like look at a film and look at it to study like the art direction, right? And be like, hey, it's really cool that these curtains fit in with the color direction of the scene or something uh, and try to derive meaning from that, I guess. But then in a video game, I can't, like, if Will and I are in an elevator together in Dark Souls, I never end up going, wow, it's really cool that the elevator works. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that Kojima, like, tries to put that level of meaning into the setting of his games? Or... Could you repeat that first part? So Travis was talking about people deriving meaning from like the curtains on a window in a shot. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you thought that Kojima put the same amount of intention. I mean, I don't know if it's intention, but I guess the same sort of meaning like level in his games and like setting in um, like how the game functions. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. And it gets a bit tricky because of the different nature of games and movies. But yeah, I, I'd say he he does do that. Do you think he has conversations with specific people, like his art directors, to be like, this is what I want um, this scene to mean, and I want you to figure out how to put my intention into this? Or do you think that he just has people that are like his go-to people because he knows that they share his vision already uh i'm not sure i know um he's worked with an artist i think called yoji shinkawa um on like since like metal gear solid in like 1999 and he and that guy is still working with kojima even now like he's 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 been with kojima even though kojima's like changed companies and all that so i'm wondering if maybe he just that he and this guy just work really well together and maybe he can just give that guy the general idea and this person can kind of provide what Kojima's looking for. I'm, I'm not mm -hmm. too sure, but he has kept the same kind of art director on for like many games. Maybe there just needs to be more like, I don't know, like games criticism. Like there is like film criticism and we just need to unpack video games. Like auteur theory was very instrumental in the way that people critiqued film. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if, like, uh, I, I'm curious if kind of the way that Kojima is treated will lead to any sort of evolution of the way that games criticism is written. Because mm -hmm. I feel like we've already kind of started to see that with the reviews of Death Stranding. 
which uh like you can't it seems i've read a few of them i tried not to read them all the way through because i want to kind of experience a lot of the game fresh but um i feel like it, it seems like the everyone who has published a review of death stranding like you can't talk about it without talking about the sort of auteur value of hideo kojima whether mm-hmm. or not you agree with it uh and so like i i wonder if more people will start to be considered video game auteurs and if that will impact the way that we talk about games and talk about people's discographies of games or maybe gamesographies i don't know if that's a word <laughs> because there's i feel like there's not too much of that out there right now like there are like there are some examples that i had shared earlier like tim schaefer or like david cage but um yeah i also think it would be cool if there was some way for different elements of like video game development to be exposed to people better like if games outlets were to have like a column or something where you feature like an environment designer or you talk to someone on something as abstract as like physics every week uh talk to like a physics artist or something if that's even a term um try to get a better understanding of what they do and what their work looks like i wonder if that would be a way to like kind of get those different uh behind the curtain sort of roles out there into the into the public lexicon um and not have everything just be the game was made by this man Mm -hmm. i can think of i i I, like the the 90s game that kind of popularized i guess the first person shooter was doom and i think that's in an interesting spot because when people talk about doom Nobody talks about a singular person being behind that. And it was in such an early period of gaming that usually when they talk about Doom, they talk about every one of the developers for different things. And it's curious that as, you know, time has gone on, that doesn't really happen. Like, nobody, you don't do that now. Uh, Can you give me, like, an example? Yeah, I guess, like, John Carmack is famous for, he was kind of like this programming, like, genius and he was able to make like a a first person game that ran really well on like early 90s computers Mm -hmm. and he continued to do a lot of crazy engine work in creating like quake which was like another three a fully 3d game engine that ran really well on like mid 90s computers but these days we don't really have people who we celebrate for like technical structures we have companies we have epic games makes the the unreal engine yeah and it's like i guess with doom yeah it was made by the company id software and they're still around now but when they when people talk about doom i don't hear people usually say oh it did such a good job it's usually like oh i liked john romero's work on this or american mcgee and tom hall like did some really cool stuff on this or carmax engine was badass it's like that was a game where i felt i feel like everybody who worked on it got recognized in some way and i don't mean like their name was in the credits i mean like there's still discussion about the work they did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is like for, a group of people who these are like these are pioneers of this craft. Yeah. So you would have to talk about these people if you wanted to to go any further in this medium. Yeah. And then with games now, it's like, oh yeah, Kojima, so so great. Oh yes. It's like who um who do you think modeled all the main characters? And it's like oh I don't know I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's a different conversation. 
um, I wonder how people can start to care about that or to care about, you know, like who is designing and developing the physics engines. Would that just be like yeah, better I mean, marketing teams? Does marketing want to... <laughs> Does, does marketing want to like popularize the artists behind the scenes though? They're just to sell a product. I mean, I feel like it just depends on like what like you're doing. Um, like, are we just gonna have you know like I guess like let's plays on YouTube sell video games or like do do we want to have like more behind the scenes? Content? Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty difficult to care about like the art and craft of a game if you're the general public. If like most of your understanding of video games is my favorite streamer like yeah had this funny moment while he was playing a game or something. Mm -hmm. But I think what Will was saying about Doom is interesting because like Doom was one of those things where it was like there was nothing like this at the time. Mm -hmm. And so they ended up like discussing all of the like technical facets of this with all these different people. I think maybe like these days, like Palmer Lucky is a household name because he came up with the Oculus, or at least that's what it feels like to the general public is that this man like pioneered this other thing that was kind of unlike anything that had ever been seen before. So it feels like when there's any sort of big technological leap that not that Palmer Lucky is an auteur, but he's kind of just an, a name uh, that you associate with a technology, I guess. Um, I guess maybe with trying to add, with changing the way we advertise a game. I guess, I guess instead of it being like an auteur theory of like an auteur of one, it would be an auteur of like a team, like oh the, the people who brought you this are doing this, but then that's still kind of. That usually ends up getting tied to like a company mm -hmm. rather than all the people working on it. Yeah, I think, yeah, we didn't even talk about that. But like, I feel like if if auteur theory is a thing in gaming, it, it, like at least in the subconsciousness, it's definitely with companies. Like you talk about the games that Epic is making or you talk about the games that Blizzard is making. Or like, oh, it's a Ubisoft game. I don't know why we didn't make that connection sooner. Maybe this is just the, this is the end of the auteur discussion. We figured out that auteurs in video games are companies. And because that's I, really upsetting too, because it's yeah. this like <laughs> company. Yeah, because companies getting... don't make games though. The 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 it's but, people. But, but people then it's yeah. the issue of with the, the with the amount of people who work on games now though, it becomes so unwieldy. Yeah, or that's at least true. as far as I can tell. So people just you know like, oh, it's by this company. It's like yeah. But yeah, like a thing that I find really depressing is when I come across something that was shared on Twitter and it's like, look at these really cool pieces of art. These are all by the guy who did like a bunch of the art for Overwatch or something. And it's like, OK, this is very cool. I've never fucking heard of this guy, but it seems like he <laughs> made most of Overwatch. But Overwatch mm -hmm. is made by Jeff Kaplan. So that can't be right. Yeah, I wish I wish they could get that recognition. Yeah, I wish they could talk about, you know their inspiration and why they made specific choices and i mean there was the one time when everyone was like hey why is this new overwatch character barefoot and then the artist behind it was like i made him barefoot because i wanted it to feel like he came right out of out of a mental asylum and everyone was like uh, oh yeah maybe we shouldn't talk to artists <laughs> about things <laughs> i mean yeah maybe some artists are gonna have <laughs> 
shitty opinions, but <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean that as a serious point. Yeah. Uh, on that note, I think we should take a break, and then when we come back, we'll do our thoughts and prayers and wrap up the podcast. All right. Thoughts and prayers. Uh, my thoughts and prayers are with the Pope. Not the current Pope, but a Pope in our CK2 simulation. Will and I played a pr- Will and I played the longest continuous game of CK2 I've ever played, because I usually die within, I don't know, a handful of, of dudes. But we've gone, like, far in the timeline, right? Wow. We've still got another, like, couple hundred years to go, I think. What year does the, what year does CK two end it again? It ends in like fourteen fifty. Okay, because that's never we made it. Because because like I, they said in CK three, they're getting rid of like some of the later start dates, which is like why would you even have why I don't understand why some of the later start dates are in CK two. Yeah, because CK two is about them. building dynasties and generations, and I've always loved starting in the the one that was added by DLC, the oldest one. Uh, like the 800s or something, and I usually don't make it through the 900s because of that. Um, <laughs> but we started at the default date, which is what 1066. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I've been alive, so that that's been good. But we ran into something funny where <laughs> first we just had like a like a laughing fit because I noticed that the Pope. Because in this game, you can get stuff on your character portrait, right? You can get blood and stuff on your character yeah. portrait. I went to talk to the Pope, and he was fucking filthy. He was he was dirty, and I looked at his modifiers, and it was like, yeah, he's muddy. And we were like, what? <laughs> and we laughed about it, and then we went on. And then, like, probably uh, one Pope later, I went to talk to the Pope again, and he was dirty. And we we started, we thought maybe it was just a coincidence, but then, like, more and more Popes were just like... Every once in a while, when we went to check out check on the Pope, he was dirty. He fell in the he was muddy, <laughs> and it was just it was so funny. So I I went on to Google, and I searched for Crusader Kings two Pope muddy question mark, and the second result was someone's Steam uh, screenshot uploaded, and the caption was "This is why the Pope is always muddy," and it was an <laughs> event. Uh, here, let me just Google it. Uh, uh, sorry, CK2. I'm laughing so much. That's hilarious. Muddy. Yeah, it's very funny. Um, here it is. CK2, why the Pope is always muddy. So, uh, just here's the event. Just as he is about to complain for the hundredth time about the poor locale my coronation is taking place in, one of the swines trotting around the main hall bumps into the Holy Father, slamming him headfirst into the mud. A dead silence falls upon the main hall. So apparently... Because the Pope is always doing so many coronations in the game, he keeps getting this event happen to him where a pig knocks him into the mud, and that's why the Pope is just, like, very frequently filthy. I can only assume that's happening because most of the realms in Europe are either, are, like, running very close to, like, a deficit. (laughs) So nobody has, like, the many, like, the thousand gold to dump on a coronation. So they always throw the cheapest one in a barn. And so the Pope always goes to these because he's crowning like a high ranking king. And since there's no money, it's in a, like a shitty barn and he's always falling in the mud. That's that's I, I, that's got to be it. Yeah, man. I can't wait for Crusader Kings three. Also, Absolutely. shouts out to Steam user Gaigda who uploaded this. It has it has no interaction. I think I think I'm going to give it a thumbs up so that they know that I appreciate 
them solving this conundrum that I had of why is the Pope always muddy? And also the good SEO on this, the caption, (laughs) Sikatu, why the Pope is always muddy. Okay, very cool. Helped me find this. Someone else, please do their thoughts and prayers now. Um, my thoughts and prayers are with myself, I guess, and my zine <laughs> partner, <laughs> um, because we're going to go to Short Run in Seattle, which is a sort of like large artist and comic artist festival zines, essentially um, festival in Seattle. And this is the first year I've ever gone. I've heard it's fantastic and overwhelming, but really fun and that. People sell a lot of things, which will be good. Love to sell my zines. Um, But I have to wake up super early on Saturday morning because we're driving up in the morning because we don't want to fuck around and Uh find a place to stay. We want to get it over with as as fast as possible because we have other things to do. And I'm really tired of, of, of all of the zine stuff that I've been doing. Yeah, so I have to, we have to like leave Portland at like 7, 6.30 or 7 in the morning on a Saturday. It sounds Oof. horrible. Because like I don't even wake up that early on a regular day. <laughs> <laughs> so like how am I going to be out of the house at 6.45? Who the fuck knows? Um, It'll happen. I believe in myself. I can like get to the airport at like 5. So I think I can get in the car. But I guess I have to look cute because I'll be selling my wares at a table. So I don't know. Pray for like, me, please. Is it like zine season? Is that a thing? Um, I don't think so. I just okay. feel like there's been a lot in the past couple of weeks, just like by happenstance, because like um, Portland's is in July. I know Short Run's always in November. I guess Olympia is in October, and I guess Spokane was also in October. But like I know the one in Tri Cities was in like early summer, late spring. And then, like, there's a couple of other ones that we want to go to that are in California slash New Mexico. And those are also later on uh-huh. in the a few months from now. Um, I think they just, like, happen all the time. But they're just, just by, like, coincidence, there's just a bunch in three weeks. So it's a lot. I'm very Ooh. tired. I can't wait yeah. for it to be over. <laughs> Our prayers go out. Thanks. Uh, my thoughts and prayers are on, uh, uh, I don't know, Western fashion history. Oh, cool. I, uh, I saw a, a painting of this one uh, like Spanish princess, and I was like, she looks kind of fucked up. I think she's a Habsburg. And then I read about the dynasty, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, she is a Habsburg, because she's got like, I don't know, that inbred Habsburg face. And I was like, that's mm-hmm. sad. Very ornate garb, I wonder. And then I just kept reading about like, fashion in like the 1600s mm-hmm. and it was like so absurd but i just i just kept going forward like decade by decade and looking at how fashion at least western fashion evolved and i was just so fascinated by how like closely things like that are tied with like geopolitical history and like how certain events can impact that like after the french revolution it's like you're out of your mind if you're going to be wearing absolutely expensive garbs in france because why on earth would you do that after a revolution so a lot of french fashion gets more austere and it's like oh wow and that like that impacts fashion for all time it's like oh wow that's that's crazy cool 
Those are my it thoughts. It's really interesting. I have no real prayers for Western fashion, just some thoughts. <laughs> so those are my thoughts. Damn, what parts of, of modern fashion are uh, completely reliant on some absurd event in the past? Hmm. Uh, I guess, like, maybe, maybe not an event, but I guess heels were made for riding horses. Okay. That one makes sense. Oh, just so you could have, like... A heel for, like, the stirrup. Yeah, so you could, like, reach all the way down. I just love how most things can be traced back to horses, in design at least. <laughs> like, why do we have, why, like, why are roads this size? Oh, it's because horses. Uh, I look, I saw some ads And, like, for, train like... tracks? Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. the horses had horses. carts, and this is how wide the carts were, and then this is how, this is how wide the streets were. We must end the horse and train monopoly. Uh, I, I saw an ad for, like, I think it was, like, a 1910s women's cycling wear, and it's just, like, pants, and I was like, what the, what is this? And then I realized, oh, women wearing pants. That back then would have been, like, are you crazy? Women in pants? Are you out of your goddamn mind? <laughs> also, we women bicycling. Like, right. women, like, the, the history of, like, women on bicycles is so, so interesting. One of my friends did her, like, master's thesis on women, like, the history of, like, women's bicycles. Huh. Um, and it's fucking crazy. Like, all the things that people were saying about, like, women dating online and just, like, Damn. oh, hookup culture is gonna, like, you know, is bad for women. <laughs> like, they were saying about fucking bicycles and, like, oh, <laughs> like, they'll, like, I don't know, they, like, go too fast and it will be, like, a problem for their, like, their ability to give birth. Like, and it was such, like, bonkers shit that, it's, I don't know, it just it's crazy. makes you, like, <laughs> laugh about that. It's funny. That's like it's only like one hundred years ago, so it's 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 pretty distant, but still quite recent overall. To like look at just stuff like ads that are like anti um that are like just like lampooning suffragettes, and it's like oh, wow. if women oh, get no. the vote, this is what's going to happen. You wouldn't want to be a stay at home husband, would you? And it's all this <laughs> shit. Like most of the jokes pretty much devolve into um. Instead of the man smoking cigars and the woman taking care of the child, now it's the woman smoking cigars and the man taking care of the child. This you is the fall of that. This is the fall of Western civilization. Am I right, my fellow men? And it's just like, oh wow, that's they they had like one joke that they just kept repeating. And I was like, oh wow. I mean, in the end, they didn't really win out on that, but it's just like, wow. I can just picture like some abusive like upper middle class husband in like the 1910s reading it going very true (laughs) it's also like the all the boomers like identifying as attack helicopters (laughs) right yeah it's the yeah yeah it's the one joke over and over again (laughs) you guys know boomer is a slur hey that's not your word oh that what is a slur oh i'm sorry i shouldn't say that word i guess the b word Boomer? Hey, oh no! You, I can't. I cannot believe you. I just can't said believe that Rebecca word. is canceled. This is <laughs> boomer cancer cancel culture. Oh gosh! Once we get our grandkids to teach us how to use Twitter, you're done for. All right. On that note, Rebecca is canceled. I think we've just about exhausted the podcast. This is the Rebecca number one boomer podcast. <laughs>
This is Boomer Pals. Welcome to Boomer Pals. We could start a podcast called Boomer Pals. Could we impersonate boomers and get away with it? No, okay. I don't think so. I don't think no. so either. I don't think I. It's an art form. I, I, don't I don't think, think I, I would be able to commit well to. Yeah, I don't think I could commit to the bit at all. Like I would just, I would get angry. I think or start part, laughing. I think that's part of. I, yeah, I think part of not understanding boomers is that I literally don't understand boomers, so I wouldn't really know uh, yeah, how, to, how to play that character. Oh, I remembered my thoughts and prayers that I actually was going to do instead. Oh. Um, I've been reading the book um, Because Internet by Gretchen Mc, some like Scottish name that I don't know how to pronounce. Oh, um, okay. She's like a linguist. Um she has a podcast called Linguist, like, oh, mm, Lingthusiasm or something like that. Oh, that's um, fun. Anyway, it's about, like, internet linguistics and internet language and internet culture. And it's really interesting because I finally learned why boomers use dot, 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 dot all the time. Oh. When well, they're, like, well, typing how, comments. Why? <laughs> Because apparently, um, it it's, it mimics like like writing letters and like what you would do when you were like writing instead of creating like a line break or sending a new message like we would do. You wouldn't want to waste that much like paper. You're like writing a postcard or something, so you would do a dot 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 between like another thought. Wait, do boomers know oh. that this is why they do this? I don't know, but like that's just how like when she was like analyzing like written text from like the 70s and the 80s like this is what people would do and just like in casual obviously like not like formal language and like their casual every day like oh i'm just gonna jot a note to my pal like you know on a piece of paper they did it to save paper i don't think they did to save paper but that's just like how you would communicate just like that's just how you format i guess that's interesting yeah because I, her example was like with a postcard. And I feel like with a postcard, obviously that would be to save space because you only have like, you know, a three inch by three inch square to write on on the back of a postcard. Um, you would just like do dot 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 like an ellipses to communicate a new thought. Whereas like when we come across ellipses, we only like see them in reference to like quotes. So we like... We're like, what's missing here? Like, why doesn't this make sense? Why are you doing all this dot, dot, dots when you could have just sent this as multiple messages or just like added a, a return somewhere? I know when and I, I was had, like, whoa, when, yeah, <laughs> when I had Facebook, I would always get very confused by the posts that my Filipino relatives would make or the messages that they would send me that would just be like, is your mom home? Dot, dot, dot. What is this trying to convey? I don't understand. <laughs> but I think a lot of that also then maybe isn't just about like boomer stuff but then that's also like you're getting into a different internet culture mm-hmm. yeah i think so <laughs> and that's how it is yeah when i like get stuff from filipino relatives it's like i i i have a vague understanding of this but yeah. i'm not sure like what's going on here i know when dot, i dot. communicate with my cousins they have did you see um um crazy rich asians mm-hmm and like the beginning scene, or I guess like the beginning, whatever, when like all the aunties are like texting and freaking out and oh, like yeah. all the emojis, like that's how my cousins communicate <laughs> with their keyboards. And it's really weird when I like will talk to them because like I can't understand like half of the things that they're saying because it's like all in emojis. 
And like, I don't know what the, the nuances of, <laughs> of like the, these emojis mean. Like I have literally no idea. Like it doesn't make any sense to me, um, which I think is funny. I know a lot of people anyway. get very confused by Twitch speak because it's, they it also involves a lot of, uh, emojis and most of them have a lot of like imbued meaning that if you were to log on to twitch for the first time in 2019 you would have absolutely no idea what people are saying a lot of the time that's really cool i think and i hope i um i'm only like it's really cool aside from like the racist ones but yeah but just like how i'm sure specific like streamers like cultivate specific meaning with their specific emojis Mm -hmm. um and because like i know and like my co-working space has a slack and we have a lot of custom emojis that you know like have a specific meaning because like that's how we use them but like you know it's just they're just like doodles that we or like doodles just like little pictures that people add but like you wouldn't put like we have like specific uses for each one and like one is more like i guess like sarcastic than the other but like it's literally just like a picture like it doesn't mean anything more than like what is depicted except mm-hmm. for like the context with which it is used um and like the tone i guess it conveys when yeah. you mentioned- like she was also talking about like how about like why there can be such a disconnect between like talking to people like in different like internet generations and she categorizes like um I guess like the pre-internet people, there's full internet people, there are semi-internet people, and there are post-internet people. And so like the pre-internet people were there, you know, the very dawn of the internet. Um, The full internet people have sort of like grown up and like have seen almost all sort of like internet as communication, as social interaction from like start to finish with like AOL messenger, that kind of thing. And then semi-internet people just sort of like used email or used the internet for their job. Um, and then like full internet people, not full internet people, post internet people are people who've just used like social media as internet. Uh Um, and so she has like various like reasons why like people have like specific language or they have these sorts of things. And one of the big things she talks about is like punctuation and how punctuation has like impacted how we perceive tone and why it, people who like communicating as like someone who is a full Internet person with someone who is a um, I guess semi internet person where they're just like typing like they would an email and like I'm reading all of this sort of like nuance into the use of periods when they were just using it as a fucking period um, I just think that's interesting or like when I send emails I always I use a lot of exclamation marks when I text people um, and I always have to like edit those out in emails because like I don't want to look like <laughs> I'm like a maniac or something too excited about i'm so excited about meeting you for coffee oh my god um it's i was when you mentioned uh when you're trying to like i don't know like just message with your cousins and like you you, there's like emojis there and you're like uh uh, i don't know i don't know your context (laughs) for these like for me with like i i I had a phone for like since i was like in middle school but i did not like texting at all and so in the, in my entire life, via like SMS, I've sent like 10 messages. <laughs> I don't, I, I just never texted. 
And I just, I don't now. So for me, there's like things with the way people message online on things like Messenger or even on Twitter and DMs where it's like, I message in a very different way. And it's like, I'm sorry, guys, I, I have no context for any of this. That's really interesting. And it's like, I guess I'll need to text with you more often so I can figure this out. (laughs) But see, you know, as as it goes on, I get better at like reading certain things. But sometimes it's like I would use I used to use I would use a period when like I would end a sentence and people would be like, dude, I can't tell if you're like absolutely pissed. (laughs) And it's like, oh, and then, you know, now with that context, it's like, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, a period in certain places is like absolutely definitive. And it's like. Oh, okay. That provides like a certain tone, and it's like, okay, cool, interesting. I like to send people uh, lowercase okay, just two letters, and <laughs> each letter has its own period. <laughs> it's a very threatening. It, that is very threatening. I always spell out okay. I'm like the only one I know who does that. No, I do that when I actually want to use the word correctly. <laughs> I've, I've also ignorant. been reading a book about the internet. It's in a very different context, though. Uh, it's called Tubes, A Journey to the Center of the Internet. And it just Tubes? Chron- yeah, it's called Tubes, A Journey to the Center of the Internet. And it's this but like, guy... The main title is just Tubes. Yeah, that is the main title. <laughs> and the subtitle is A Journey to the Center of the Internet. But this guy is trying to, like, physically understand, like, how where and how the internet exists. So, as I read That's more... That's really cool. I will hopefully understand more well like i already i know how and and why and where the internet exists but i'm excited to uh follow this guy's journey as he understands it and get that perspective someone once uh someone once i think did a like did a did an article uh referencing the author and his book uh as kind of a thought experiment for like how would you destroy the internet like how would you completely get rid of the internet like if like in sort of like a terrorism aspect um huh like what would you have to do to to make the internet just unusable uh and it, it it's a very interesting thing to read because it turns out that like you would need a team of probably hundreds of people and a lot of firepower in order to like in order to substantially knock out the internet because it's just so like tenderly and it like you couldn't attack one building and have really any of an impact on the internet i find it very interesting how like uh how kind of like a like a virus the internet is it's just like one with our planet at this point like it's it would be almost impossible to to rid ourselves of it i hope somebody dms the hit point pals twitter and says my nephew shared this with me. Exo really loved the podcast. Mind if I share? Haha. I would love that. And we have boomers listening to our podcast. <laughs> I would love that. I would also be confused because I don't think anything that we say on this podcast resonates with any boomer anywhere. In fact, I hope it doesn't. Me too. I would be really upset. <laughs> we are the voice of boomers. Un- unknowingly. <laughs> That would be, that would be, that'd be a nightmarish awakening. That would be some horror. That would be horrifying. That's cosmic horror. That's some, that's some Kafka-esque shit. (laughs) Do you think someone should rewrite the metamorphosis, but have it be the boomer morphosis? (laughs) That would be so fucking stupid. (laughs) On that note, I think this has been Hit Point Pals for this week. Uh, We'll see all of you boomers and such next time.
All right, here's another idea for your campaign. Uh, all the players are, a, uh, are members of a cult and a, a coughing sickness breaks out. And they have to figure <laughs> out whether or not this is uh, a good result of their rituals or just a bad side effect of something else. That is also interesting. There, there they go. All right, I should write all of these down, flesh them out a little People bit more. People get to big and the cough. <laughs> they get big, yeah. That would be fun if everyone was in a cult. I really want to run like an evil campaign because, mm. you know, Svetlana is evil. Oh, and next week is going to be my big betrayal of everybody. I'm so excited. Oh, no. Oh, I'm no. Oh, no. so excited. Oh, no. Maybe that should no, because I don't. I don't know. They'll probably. I don't know if they listen to the podcast. Um, I don't want to like. Yeah, keep that. Keep that secret. Yeah, I gotta keep that secret. Here, I'll riff, talk about it afterwards. On, riffing on Will's, everyone gets big idea. What about <laughs> everyone? Very gradually, there's a curse on everyone that gradually makes them more and more inflated and filled with helium. <laughs> right. So the longer the story talk, goes squeaky. on, they need to like. No, they don't need to talk squeaky. They just need to like weigh themselves down with lots of items, or they're oh, going so to they have to, space. They have to gather more and more loot yeah. just to weigh themselves uh, down. I mean, I feel like that seems like a like <laughs> a longer term kind of a game, not like a a, a three hour game. Just because I I want people to like be sleeping, and then all of a sudden, like wake up on the ceiling. <laughs> yes. That'd be funny. This is also good for certain problem solving. Like if you need to get across a gap, maybe you can just kind of float across the gap, but you got to be careful you don't float too high or you'll never <laughs> come back. Well, maybe then you could just tie ropes around you to yeah. be a lot of rope tying. This Sounds would also very make it kinky. Towards, towards... <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can fulfill the BDSM and inflation fetishes all in one. All swoop, in one. So. Yeah. <laughs> Are all are all the game the games that this are they're all one offs, right? Yes, they are mostly one offs. Uh you, the heroes uh are employees of a fraudulent wizard named Marlin. And he has many uh he has a warehouse of magical items in quotes, and he, he needs you he needs the heroes to get rid of them all somehow before the local auditors come by and realize that he's a fraud. So they just have to... I guess, like, how is that larger than life? So the plot is to get rid of the wizard's items? Hmm, larger than life, huh? Um... <laughs> are that, what are the items? Are they, like, howitzers? Are they, like... Yeah. Are they, like... I don't know. Are they like manticores? I feel like it would be fun if they like were trying to. I don't know. They had to like control a man manticore or something, and they all were like level one characters because that would be really hard. And I feel like that See, would be Rebecca can pull a, Rebecca can pull an actual D and D thing out of thin air, and I'm like, are they howitzers? And <laughs> everybody wakes up and they are bugbears. Like a Kafka? Yeah. I am the bugbear. Yeah, and that goes with Travis's delving into their psyche. <laughs> I don't know how they would solve that. I feel like it would just be like he a fever dream. It. 
I mean, maybe they just are bugbears. Another thing that like we talked about in my in my play test was that um, they they like they talked their way out of the combat encounter or the final combat encounter. They didn't they didn't fight. Um, and some people were like were really upset about that, and they were like they were like I feel like I didn't win. And I just was like, but you won without killing anybody. Like, how is that? I don't know. Just I want to kill somebody. Yeah, but I feel like yeah. that's. I mean, D and D is really combat heavy. But I feel like I guess I've just played with a lot of people who haven't, who like try to go the diplomacy route most of the time. And maybe that's just because I play with women most of the time, and they're just like, yeah, of course we're going to talk about it. I didn't think that was going to be combative, and then I don't know. I like combat, so I'm generally combative. But I don't know. I just thought that was weird. And I thought that was like a weird thing to like critique me on. Like, oh, you didn't do combat, even though they did do combat. Whatever. I'm just but, complaining. But didn't now. they choose to do diplomacy? They felt like they were overpowered. Um, uh. I didn't think that they were overpowered. But. Um, there were six characters. And there was only 12 baddies and they were all they all had like eight hit points. So I think they would have been fine. They just had to like do they just had to worry about action economy. Um. But yeah, I guess one of them chose to do combat. Cool. I hate violence. All right. Violence yeah. is never the answer. Violence That's a lie. It's very uncool. Oh, yeah. Are we going to jump back in? Yeah. We Let's can violently jump back in. All right. 